We're doing a series on prayer, and uh, it's really, really awesome. And I pray, so I'm praying about the series on prayer. I'm praying about the message on prayer. Um, well, first of all, what's the context? So the context is the Lord's Prayer. And so the disciples in Matthew chapter 6 asked Jesus to teach them to pray. I think they also in Luke, but Matthew 6 is typically the one that everybody refers to. And so Jesus taught them how to pray. And you say, well, why did Jesus ask them? They asked Jesus a lot of things. They could have asked him anything they wanted. I want you to say this. Jesus loves questions. Hey, KB, would you close that door? People wonder why it gets hot in here. Because when we leave that door open, all the AC goes right out that door. So that's crazy. So like first service, I'm like, I like wanted to run off the stage and close it. But it didn't happen. But anyway, say this. Jesus loves questions. It's true. He loves questions. And so the disciples could have asked him anything they wanted, they, but they didn't ask him. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to preach. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to worship. But they did say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so they asked the Lord to teach them how to pray. And that comes from the understanding that they noticed something about Jesus, that everywhere Jesus went, the first thing he did is he would go to a place of prayer. And then before they went somewhere else, he would go to a place of prayer. So they're like, hold on a second. So Jesus went from one place of prayer to another place of prayer, and in between he performed miracles, and that's exactly what happened. And they began to make a direct correlation between the kingdom manifesting in their lives and prayer happening, right? So Jesus gives them, uh, they call it the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the disciples' prayer because Jesus gave it to them. And it's our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth, you guys know the drill, right? But that, that's not just a mantra that we say. It was actually a heading. It's actually a topic. It's, it's line items. So that it begins with honor, it begins in worship. And so when we're praying these different things, we come first before the Lord as Father. What does that do? That's positioning us. I'm not going to get into all of it, but I'll just, I will do this part so that you can understand what I'm talking about. So we come before the Lord and we say, our Father. So we're coming before him. And the first part of prayer is, say it with me, the first part of prayer oh this is second service you all don't have any excuse the first part of prayer is always positioning isn't it interesting identity and positioning is so important to the Lord and so the first thing he does is he wants us to position ourselves he wants us to know who he is he's our father he's not the world's father in Christ he's your father not everybody gets to call him father but you do and the second implication of being calling him a father is understanding that if he's my father, then I'm his son. And Jesus wants me to come to him and he wants me to approach him with the identity and the understanding that I'm a son. I'm not a beggar and I'm not a victim. And so when we come before the Lord, we come before the Lord as sons and daughters. We don't come before the Lord as beggars and we don't come before the Lord as victims. And, but this is atypical about how we pray in churches. Listen, I was taught a lot of this, but this is not what scripture says. We come before the Lord and we come begging, oh God, oh God, if you're in a good mood today, oh Lord, you see my need, you see my need, oh God, if you just feel like it, if there's any mercy in you today at all, oh God, please, 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 you're not a beggar. Oh, we come to him as victims. Why God, oh why? Why is this happening to me? Oh, you see Sister Suji, why is this happening to you? Lord, in your sovereign grace, we just ask and we just ask you to drop down mercy. You're not a beggar and you're not a victim. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayers of the righteous avail much. We are to pray effectually. Oftentimes, we, well, we pray like fervent beggars, don't we? Oh, God. Oh, God. I just asked you right now. I just pray right now. We pray, we're fervent beggars or we're fervent victims. So we're praying with the fervent side, but we're not praying effectual. And the reason, one of the reasons we don't play effectual or pray effectually is because we're praying out of position. 
And so there's all these other different things, these different aspects within that prayer. But just to give you context of how Jesus is laying it out, um, our Father in heaven, honored be your name. Say with me, my inheritance is in his name. Everywhere the name of the Lord is, is your inheritance. Believers have destiny and believers have inheritance. All of us have an inheritance. It's n- and it's not in the sweet by and by. It's in the rotten here and now. So you've been given access to an inheritance. All of you have a destiny. Your destinies may be different, but your, but your inheritance is all the same. We all have equal inheritance, and our inheritance is in his name. So what happens is, is when it says, our Father, it's positioning. The second side is, hallowed be or honored be your name. Say this with me. My inheritance is in his name. Come on. And honor creates access. You get the point? My inheritance is in his name. Well, how do we access, how do we access anything? In the kingdom, the way we access is through honor. Honor creates access. Honored be your name. Father, I thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh. I thank you that you are my provider and I have access to provision. That is my right of inheritance. I thank you that you are Jehovah, not Rapha, that's Jireh. You are Jehovah Jireh, my provider. You are Jehovah Rapha, my healer. I thank you that healing is mine, Lord. Divine health, spirit, soul, and body. I thank you that you have given me the ability through the Holy Spirit and the communion with the Spirit to lay hands on the sick. It's, it's, it's honoring what God has promised to you. It's yours by inheritance. It belongs to you. Provision belongs to every believer. Survival belongs to every believer. It's your inheritance. You're going to make it. Success and significance, that's an activation of another level. But every one of you is guaranteed to survive. Every one of you. You're going to make it after all. Why? Because it's your inheritance. It comes with the benefit plan. Healing belongs to you. Destiny you have to align with and choose into. Inheritance you have to activate. You have to activate inheritance. Say, I don't know what this looks like. It looks like activating inheritance. If I tossed you the keys and I said, there's a bright red Ferrari out there with your name on it, right? And you walked out there and you never got in the car and you never turned the key, it still belongs to you, but it's of absolutely no use to you other than a trophy. Most Christians, they have no understanding what their inheritance is. You toss them the keys to their inheritance and say that belongs to you, and they look at the Ferrari and they go, well, what is that? I don't even know what it is. So we have, we have believers that don't even know what their inheritance is, and then we have believers that have an inheritance, and they don't know how to turn the key. They don't know how to activate it. That's a whole other story. That has nothing to do with my message today. <laughs> that was a few weeks ago. <laughs> today we're going to talk about lead us not into temptation. That's what we're going to talk about. Now, God, ready? Ready? Everybody say, it's going to get theological. Come on, it's going to get theological. Come on, say it with me. It's going to get theological. But I can handle it. I like meat. Come on, say it. I like meat. I like potatoes. Come on. This is substance. So this isn't triviality. So we have, this, we have Matthew chapter 6. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So before I go any further, I want you to say this. Scripture cannot and will not contradict itself, but translations sometimes do. With that understanding, our English, our English Bible was translated from the Koine Greek, right? So all of the modern translations, whatever the language is, it is translated from the original language. The original language of the New Testament was Greek. While the Bible cannot contradict itself, the translations sometimes do. There's often issues within the translation, and I'm going to show you one. 
right? It doesn't mean the Bible's without error. It doesn't mean that. But what, what, what is stated here appears to be a contradiction. Scripture can't contradict itself. So if there's a contradiction within Scripture, then there's something wrong with our understanding or there's something wrong with the translation. If there's a contradiction between the Scripture and God's nature, there's something wrong with our understanding or there's something wrong with, our, with, the, with the translation. But the scripture itself, which you're going to see, the original language is, not, is, not in, is, not, is, is without error. However, sometimes the translations are poor. Just the way it is. I know I'm going to freak some of you out. You're going to be like, what are you saying, man? You're trying to say that it's not? No, I'm just trying to tell you. Like, all of you are supposed to be Bereans. The Bible says Bereans. Bereans search the matter for themselves. So what we're supposed to do, like, one of the things, all right, so, like, my job is to teach you biblical correctness, if you will. I mean, I don't even like, but, but I'm supposed to teach you the dynamic and the understanding from, from, from the deeper parts of the word. That's my job, right? My job is to do that. My job is to give you the milk, that you, a nourishment. My job is to give you the meat, which is the development. That's my job, okay? My job is not to feed you candy bars. My job is not to give you twizzle sticks and, you know, that's not my job. So we talked about it for a service, and I, sa- I said to them, I said, listen, any moms in the room, if you sent your kid to school, and the diet at your kid's school was Snickers bars, Coke, and everything was just sugar-laden, would that be okay with you? No. If, you, if every day your kid went to school, they were just dousing that kid with sugar and syrup and pancakes and waffles, and it was everything that you knew, do you think, that, would your kid's health be affected by that? That's the next question. Right, you would want your child to have something more nutritious, would you not? So God's intention for his people through the understanding of his word is that his people be nourished, that his people be developed, that his people be given substance. Yet, our modern churches don't do that at all. We're constantly, it's a, it's a nonstop sugar fest. You know, we're teaching people that anytime even the words, the, uh, most Christians I find was that when you bring them the depth and the theology, they lean in and they hunger for it. But yet there's this sort of understanding that, oh, we can't, we can't teach anybody anything deep because if we teach them deep, well, then they may, well, we just might freak them out. So they're, every, it's just sugar, 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 sugar. It's all we get. Sugar, 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 sugar. You're a champion. Sugar, sugar, sugar. I look, I'm, I believe it. I'm in. I'm a champion. You know, I like the rah-rah messages. I may teach a few of them from time to time. I like rah-rah, you know? I want it, but I can't live on rah-rah. It's just like that Shelly's got birthday cake back there, right? Everybody like, not like birthday cake? You know, we all like birthday cake, but you can't live on birthday cake. Birthday cake's okay sometimes, but you can't live on it, right? You know, you never get out of bed. If all you do is eat birthday cake, you go, oh my gosh, I feel so, I feel so lethargic. I don't know why I feel lethargic. And we wonder why we have lethargic Christians. We wonder why we have anemic Christians. We wonder why we have people that are just so, you know, almost have candida in our bloods where we have the sugar addiction, right? And it's like spinach. We have to eat spinach sometimes. Can we agree? Or greens. Let's just say greens. Leafy greens. Nobody really likes leafy greens. That's why we put, that's true. That's why we douse it with, you know, KB's like, I love leafy greens. Jeremiah's got leafy greens in his hand. This is crazy. Are you, cra- are you nuts? So anyway, they're, they're the outsiders. So they're the outliers. But leafy greens are good for you. Leafy greens, okay, so spinach is by nature. It has almost, it, sometimes it's not, but most of the time greens have a bitter, almost a bitter taste to it. But that bitter taste is necessary for your body. There is something within that green that your body needs. Sometimes when the word of God is taught people, there's something bitter within it. You don't like it. It doesn't taste good. 
but it's necessary for your development. It can't all be hot fudge Sundays and cookies and cream, right? Just to give you some context to understand like what God is calling for. You wouldn't put your child in a school or in some kind of an environment where they were feeding them with sugar. Neither does your heavenly father want you in an environment where they're constantly inundating you with sugar. If you wouldn't do that, what makes you think he would want you? This, he's got a bunch of anemic children. You know, we're, this, we're anemic, we're lethargic, we're asleep because it's a sugar fest. That's, that's what ends up happening. So what happens when you get word in you and you start getting depth in you, and you start getting strength in you, you become strong. That's, that's the point. So when scripture can't contradict it, so what I'm telling you is, theologically, my responsibility is to give you what God has instructed me to do and to understand, to apply the things that I know. That's my, that's my job in your life. Um, one of the things that, that happens is that we, we have to, I have to break the word down for you. And so the scripture was, was written in an original language. So in the New Testament, say, well, let's go Old Testament first. Say Old Testament was written in Hebrew, come on, and translated into Greek, okay? New Testament was written in Greek. So the King James wasn't Jesus' Bible. I mean, people actually think that King James was Jesus' Bible. Well, I want the Bible that what Jesus' actual words are. Thou art wonderful, O magnified Father. You know, Jesus didn't speak King James English. He spoke Aramaic Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew. But the writers translated it into Greek. Greek was important because it was the language of the day. The Hebrew Bible in A.D. 132, 132 years before, or excuse me, B.C., 132 years before Jesus came, the Hebrew people translated, they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. The reason for that is because Greek was the common language. Anybody here in airlines at all? In airlines? I know we got somebody in the, you're not Coast Guard. In shipping, is, what's the univer, is, is English the universal language in shipping? Yep, see? English is the universal language in shipping, right? So they, they have to communicate in English. Airline pilots have to communicate in English. That's, that's the, the universal language. So in our era, English is the universal language considered, right? That's basically, it doesn't mean everybody speaks English, but it means how, this is basically how transactions happen. In that world, everything happened through Greek. So even Roman citizens and Roman centurions and Roman leaders, they all spoke or educated, or educated in Greek. And a lot of the historical writings of Roman generals and senators are not written in Latin, they're written in Greek. Why? Because it was the common language. So the Hebrews, were the, the Jews, realizing this was happening, realizing that our language is irrelevant to even a lot of our people, we need to create a Bible that, that, or scriptures, we need to put scriptures together that communicate to the people in a common way. And so they, they've got together 70, uh, 70 scholars. Everybody say it with me. Septuagint. Come on. Come on, you can say it. Don't be afraid. Don't, be, don't leave me hanging. Septuagint is a fancy word. For 70, that's all it means. The Septuagint translation of the scriptures, you know, we act, we act like it means 70. So they had 70 scholars that came together. Each one went into their own room and they would translate. So they would translate like, let's say the book of Ezra. All 70 of them would translate the book and they would have to come, come together and they would have to agree upon every word. So they would have to agree. So, that, so they, in translating the Hebrew into Greek, they took this extremely seriously that all 70 of them had to agree. And if they could not come to a consensus, then they had to do it again. And so it took them a long time to process this. They took them a long time to do it. But the Greek translation of the Hebrew came from this, this original 70 scholars. That's what the word Septuagint means. In the New Testament, it was written in a specific, and it's written in both, both Testaments when translated. And in the New Testament, it was written in Koine Greek. Koine Greek is, was called Common Greek, but it's actually called Biblical Greek or called Literary Greek. 
this Greek is not spoken anymore. They haven't spoken this Greek since the 1400s. So this, is, this Greek, although it was a common language, it was a very difficult language to understand. I knew a guy, he was a professor of Koine Greek. He knew it. I mean, this guy could teach Greek at a university level. And he told me no one, and I mean no one, is an expert on Koine Greek. He's like, it's that complex. And so really what Greek has done is they've dumbed down the language, right? And so to make it more understandable and relatable, but biblical Greek comes from Koine Greek. Why did God choose Koine Greek? Why did he do that? Well, one of the reasons is, is because Greek itself is a very specific language, extremely specific. How specific? How many words for love do we have? One, right? We have one word. Like, I love cookies. I love, I love poopies. I love, I love my wife. You know, I love, I love, you know, I love, you know, I love baseball. I, lo- I love all these things. So do you, Jesus loves me. So does Jesus love you the same way you love cookies? I mean, it's like, you know, we have one word that relates to, to the word love. In Greek, there's four. There's the word storge, which means I love cookies. There's the word phileo, which means I love everybody, I love my friends. There's the word eros, which means I am intimately and sexually involved with my wife. That's the word eros, where we get the word erotic from. There's the the word agapeo, which means it's a love, a selfless love that comes only from God. So we have four words for Greek, four words. And so if you can understand that, what happens is, is when you have that many words for any particular word, you're gonna narrow the subject down pretty intensely. It's going to get pretty, you're going to, you're going to really understand the meaning of it. So in breaking down, this is how this, I'm just showing you like, this is the correct way. Somebody's going to email me. That's not exactly the correct way to break the verse down, pastor. Listen, I'm in the, I'm in the upper echelon of showing you how to break the word down. There's other people that do it differently, but I'm just going to, I'm showing you a little bit like how it works with me. So like when I'm translating something and I'm trying to understand the meaning, and if I read something that's not congruent with God's nature or not congruent with the rest of scriptures, I break it down. I break, I begin to understand. I begin to realize there's something in this verse that is mistranslated. So I, and almost inevitably, it's absolutely true. And so I'll go back to the, and it's, it's not, it's very rare. But the, the point being is like, I'll, I'll go to the Greek and I'll go to the Hebrew and, and I'll, t- I'll take both words and I'll break them down and I'll try to understand it. Then there's a third process to that. How did the ancients use it? So in examples, like Koine Greek was spoken by Plato, Koine Greek was spoken by uh, Aristotle, all these ancient guys. So we understand when they used the word, they, they, they were applying it in a certain way. So this is just a, a general way to come to an understanding about a word. What does this mean? Well, it means that this is what God actually requires of us and of his people. People, particularly the teacher, is to bring forth truth as it is correctly. The, the original language is where the error does not lie, if you understand that. So just to give you another example of that, what does that mean? Words change, don't they? Do words change? Anybody? Right? Okay, so I'll give you a couple. The word cute used to mean sharp-witted. Oh, you're cute. You're sharp-witted. What's the word cute now mean? Oh, he's cute. Oh, I like him. He's cute. That's what cute means, right? How about I'll give you another one. Flirt. I, was, I don't know why these words are. I was like, love is in the air, clearly. So the second, <laughs> love is in the air. So the next word is flirt. Do you know what flirt used to be? A sharp blow. It's when you walked up and punched somebody in the arm. You would flirt, you're flirting. Are you flirting with me? What are you doing hitting me like that? Now it means romantic interest, doesn't it? So ladies, if you're interested in a guy, just come up and just punch him real hard in the arm. You're like, what was that for? I'm flirting with you. Really? <laughs> So words change, but the, so we have to understand, we, we have to realize that, that some of the stuff that was translated in, in, you know, in the King James doesn't necessarily apply today. We have to understand it from, so okay, understanding biblical text, you have to understand it from a modern context. You have to, it, so 
Correct interpretation is the understanding from the modern context, no particular order here. It has to be drawn from the original text, and it has, the translation has to be consistent with the revealed character and nature of God. So that when you're interpreting scripture, it has to be correct to the original text. It has to be consistent with the original intent and the, or with, the, with the revealed heart and known of God. So any verse that tells you that God is not loving, God is not gracious, God is not kind, any kind of conjectures that are there is, is not congruent with the nature of God. So there's a problem in our interpretation. So I'll give you another one that's really easy to understand. Right? Words mean it. And when you, re- when you start reading, so I'll give you, I'll, I could give you several. So Tyndale, and uh, these are reformers. I'm not going to expect you guys to understand all this. Maybe you will if you do. Hey, come all in. But there's two guys that in the, in, when, when the Bible was first being translated into English, Tyndale was one of the guys that translated the Bible into English. And some of you, you have a Bible on the bottom. It'll say Tyndale. Well, this guy, this dude, they burned him at the stake, by the way. You know, happy day. Good day for him, right? Hey, I translated the word of God. Torch him, you know? <laughs> but he translated it from the original Greek. And when he translated it, because he, he, the Catholic Church was making everything in Latin, and it was, they were just using a lot of things to control people. The Catholic Church was controlling people. through they, they would only speak in Latin. They only had the Bible in Latin. All the translations came from Latin, and they would never use the original Greek. Tyndale discovered the original Greek. And when he read the original Greek, he said, everything I've read is a lie. He said, if this is the New Testament, then everything I have ever read or ever been taught was a lie. And he, that's how the Reformation happened. They reformed. They broke away. Protestant. They protested. They protested the, the, the structures that were being used to control people. And their whole idea was, again, to get the word of God into people's hands. And so uh, Tyndale translated the Greek, but that was one of the things he said, was that if, if, this, is, if this is true, which it was, he, was you know, he said, then everything I've ever read and everything I've ever been taught has been a lie. So... It, Luther did the same thing. But Tyndale was a little bit before him, but it was right, right around the same, the, same, the same period. Yeah, they didn't kill Luther, <laughs> but they did burn Tyndale. You know, hey, man, what's going on? What have you been up to lately? Man, I translated the word of God from Greek. Wow, really burned that guy. So, and so, lead, so what, what I'm saying, so like, like let's just take, I'll, take, I'll give you one passage, and I'm going to get into where I'm going. All right? So I'll give you one passage. You guys have all heard, so most of you have heard this verse. So it'll say this, like, um, let this, I love this. This is, this is one of the dramatic ones to me. Uh, it'll say, uh, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being, who being the Lord, being God, did not consider equality with God to be something to be held onto, but laid aside his garment, laid aside his deity, laid aside his, his, his position, and took on the form of a servant, right, and became obedient even to the death of the cross, Philippians. So that's a verse, but let me t- just show you. So it'll say, let this mind be in you. Woo! That's how we teach it, right? It sounds like a poem. Let this mind be in you. The original Greek says, pound it in. That's what it says. Beat this into your skull. That's literally what the, if you read it in Greek, it means pound it in your head. Jesus was God and he became a servant. So beat this into your thick head that he was God and he became a servant. So you be like him. You're not greater than him. He laid aside his position, his kingly position, and lowered himself and became a servant. So beat this in your skull. That's what it's saying. Really? <laughs> Pound it in your head. That crazy? Totally change. It doesn't change the meaning, but it changes the emphasis completely. So here, I'll give you another one. Right? So here's, the, here's where we're going to go. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, the implication here is that God tempts us with evil. Lord, I just pray. I know you have many tests and many trials for me today. I just pray that today is one of those days where you not lead me into temptation. The implication is that the Lord leads us into temptation. The problem with that is that is completely incongruent with Scripture. 
What is it? So it says, uh, but each one is tempted when they're drunk. It says, God, cannot tempt, God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted. Let each one understand that when they are tempted, they are drawn away by their own, what? Desires, right? So let me give you what this verse actually says in Greek. The, the, the word lead is, is, is sikines. You can say it with me. Isikines. There you go. You guys are speaking Greek. You're like laying it down. You speak Koine Greek, you can go from time to time. Give me something. Isikines. Whoa. <laughs> and it means to be carried away, compelled, and driven. So the word that they translate for lead here, it can mean lead. You can say carried away. Okay, lead. You can kind of make a conjecture there. But isikines means to be carried away, to be compelled, or to be driven. Driven where? Lead us. You know what the word us means? This will really make it clear to you. Ego. So what, what is an actual translation of this verse? If I was to put this in Greek, and I'm going to add a couple words here just to make it clear. And, com- and so it says, and compelled, carried, and driven into temptation by my ego, let me not be. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? So the, the emphasis in this prayer is compelled, driven, uh, what is it? What did I say? Compelled, carried, driven by temptation, it, by my ego, let me not be. That makes sense. Well, anybody here, anything you've ever done makes, you've done out of ego? Right? Most of our temptations are directly related to ego. Does this make sense to you? It's like, I don't know, this message, like, first service was like, shh, like, quiet. It was like, hush. I'm like, am I, am I losing you guys here? Man, I'm like, I'm like, I'm... So, like, what I'm trying to get you to understand is that this is a misnomer. And actually, what it really does is it affronts the character of God. Because the character of God, just, God's not tempting anybody. God is not the author of evil. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Come on. It comes from where? Right. It comes from the Father of lights. In whom there is what? No shadow of turning. The gifts and callings of God are without what? Repentance. Right? In other words, he doesn't change his mind. So people say to me, well, God gave me this business and then he took it away. And I'm going to give me a verse. Well, he leads me into temptation and he showed me and let the temptation come upon me. And it's clear that I didn't pass the test of temptation. Therefore, my business was taken. I said, that's true. Or that that kind of concept is contradictory to the fact that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind. What God gives you, he knows what he's given you when he gives it to you. He's not here. Oh, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm going to need that back. He's not like that. He doesn't do that. I tell people all the time, if it's not good and perfect, it didn't come from Jesus. If you believe that, your theology is wrong. And what happens is what we are called to do is we're called to line up with the kingdom. Jesus is the cornerstone. When I used to do buildings and I used to do construction, first thing you'd always set was you'd set the corner. You see it even down here in South Florida. We build block houses. What's the first thing they set? Some of you would drive by a house and the only thing that's set is the corner. That's all they do. They set the corner first because everything lines up off the corner. Jesus is the cornerstone. So everything in our lives is to line up off the corner. But not Jesus isn't just the cornerstone. There is a cornerstone of thinking that has to be applied to Jesus and that he is good all the time. No matter if I understand it or not, the Lord is good. And so that congruency, so when we ascribe to God a nature within his character that is not true, we are misaligning our lives. That's what happens. Christians have lives that are misaligned because I, just, I deal with people all the time. All the time people tell me, well, God just did this to me. I'm like, where, where do you get that from? Is it good and perfect? No. Well, then it didn't come from Jesus. Real simple. I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So who's stealing, killing, and destroying? Anybody? Jesus? Is Jesus stealing, killing, and destroying? What's Jesus doing? Bringing life. And if you can understand that, you, this is just a train wreck for a lot of people because we can't understand this. And we don't get this. We don't understand what all is going on here. There's something, there's something in, in play here that's, not, that's different, but we, yet we ascribe to God evil. 
we tell the Lord evil. People tell me, oh, God gave me this sickness so he could make me humble. I'm like, really? I'm like, you take medication? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, don't stop. Ta- I don't, I'm listen, well, why don't you stop taking the medication and have it full force? If God gave it to you, well, why, why stop what he's given you? You know, take all of it. And I'm not saying that, so don't like to, well, pastor said that people should stop taking the medication. I am not saying that. I'm just trying to show the foolishness of your thinking when you think that way. Well, God took my business away, and I'm barely hanging on, and I'm in bankruptcy. And I'm like, well, then declare insolvency. Get out of bankruptcy. If God took your business away, then then give it all away. Why are you trying to save it? If he took your business away, God didn't take anything away. Who told you that? What lie do you believe? What voice do you listen to? The enemy's stealing from you, and he's stealing from you with an agreement that you've already made in your mind and your heart. I just had a guy this week, he was t- or a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about a bunch of stuff going on. And he said, that, you know, he's in, he's in a process. You know, COVID just really racked him, really racked him, and really set him back. And he had, let's just say, 25 items. I'm not going to get into the whole detail. He had 25 items. And he's in a position where he may lose 25 of these items. He's trying to regain them. He's probably going to get them back. That's what he's telling me. But he's like, oh, if I could just get out of this and save 10 of them. I said, let me ask you a question. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you how the kingdom think. You want to think like kingdom? This is what it looks like. Y'all can think anywhere you want, but if you want to come up here, I'm going to show you how to, I'm going to, show you how to understand this. Right? So I said to him, I said, did God give you those things? I go, can you look at those, those 25 things that you had? Can you think that, can you, do you believe that the Lord gave it to you? And he said, yes. I said, so if God gave that to you, why would you make a covenant with the devil that you're not going to take, that you're, you're going to just take 10th? I said, I would never make that deal. And he's like looking at me like, what do you mean? I said, if God gave it to you, Why would you surrender any of it? I said, put faith on it and begin to believe God that you're not going to lose a thing. I don't know how God's going to restore you, but he is. And he said, the fact that you're even doing that, I said, it tells me that there's some spiritual formation going over your life. And so the devil's showing up to try to make a deal because he sees God's going to move in deliverance. And God is moving in deliverance. And so the devil shows up and goes, I'll give you 10 of it back. I'll give you 10. You concede the other 15 and I'll give you 10 back. He's trying to make a deal. We're not making no deals. We're not making no deals. My faith says you can have it all back. And I literally saw him getting it all back. And I told him, when you get it all back, you can do with it whatever you want. But if the Lord gave it to you, the devil has no right to take it. And if he does have a right to take it, we're going to find that out and we're going to break it. That's it. That's kingdom thinking. Why do you surrender? Why do you accept things that are not your inheritance? Why do you accept things? We do it wholesale. We do it wholesale. (laughs) We do it all the time. Well, God gave me this sickness to teach me a lesson. Teach me, make me more humble. Really? Really? You have two kids. You have two children that are watching their mother being eaten away by a disease. You think that, what is, what is that teaching them about the goodness of God? While they witness their mother being eaten. Don't you think a greater glory would be the Lord healed my mother? Right? The Lord healed my Sherry's grandmother of cancer. Right? Full-on cancer, Catherine Kuhlman healing back in the 70s. Boom. That's affected her her whole life. Her whole life she's known that. Her whole life, she's never doubted that God's a healer. She never doubted it because she witnessed a miracle within her own family. You see the carryover, the testimony, well, God's a miserable God. He consumed my mother with disease. <laughs> what stupidity. We are heirs. Bible says this. I say to you, Galatians, that, say it with me, the heir. the heir. That would be me. Say it. As long as I'm a child, I am no different than a slave. Though I am master of all. That's right. So the Bible says. I say that the heir, that's you, as long as you are childlike, not childlike in faith, as long as you are undeveloped, ignorant, 
and immature, you are no different than slaves, though you are masters of all. Well, the problem can't be me, Pastor. Can't be me. The problem is you. The problem is your ignorance. The problem is your immaturity. The problem is your lack of courage. And the problem is your lack of faith. <gasps> Do you want to know what's wrong? I'm telling you. So that means there's areas in your life that you have to address. Some of it is bondages. Some of it is issues. You can go free. But don't say it comes from the Lord. Don't you go there. You can say it comes from Aunt Betty. You can say it comes from the guy across the street, but it doesn't come from Jesus. It may come from a lot of places, but it's not coming from the Lord. That's not biblical. I'm not saying people don't think that way, so let me be clear. There are a lot of, I know pastors that think, well, it was just God's will. God just took her home. Took her home. Really? Was it God's will? I don't know about that. You know, did you guys even ever pray for her? You know, they don't even pray. They're like, well, we trust the physicians. We trust the surgeons. We trust the doctors. We have more faith in doctors than we do in Jesus. It's a freaking cop-out. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> it's a cop-out. It's a total cop-out. Jesus doesn't have a problem with doctors. He has a problem being second. That's what I tell the believer. So if you've not exhausted, if you're going to go to 50 clinics and exhaust yourself through 50 clinics and you're not willing to go through 50 prayer lines, then we've got to, there's an issue here. The same faith you demonstrate in doctors, you better be demonstrating it in Jesus or I'm going to call you incongruent. I didn't say you're not saved. You're a believer. Claim your inheritance. Step up to the plate. It's hard, Pastor. Oh, it's so hard. It's hard to believe God. Ah, Laying brick is hard, okay? <laughs> right. right. Believe God, Christian. Rise to the level of your birth. Accept no standard that the Lord has not called you to. Why would you live diminishly? Why would you surrender? God gives you 25 things and you want to give the devil 15? No flipping way. Over my dead body. You know, I got ninja rag on my head. I got pirate dagger in my teeth. I got some shorts on and I'm standing in the alley and I'm like, bring it. Bring it. You're going to take it from me over my dead body. I'm going to fight you with every ninja move I have. I'm going to fight you with the rusted knife in my teeth if I have to. I'm going to go barefoot. I'm going to get a tracksuit on so I can lift my leg a little bit, you know. <laughs> but I'm not giving it up without a fight. Oh, it was just the Lord's will to take it from me. Oh. Victim, not a victim, you're a victor. Activate, access, fight for your inheritance, Christian. Fight for it. That's right. It's yours. Jesus doesn't care. Jesus doesn't care any more than you do. I know this shocks people. <gasps> if it mattered to you, you would fight for it. Jesus will partner with you. He's, not, he's already done the work. He's given you the authority. You have to step into that position and begin to activate and work through the process of understanding. Our problem, our struggle, is in not what belongs to us. Our struggle is in understanding it and how to bring it forward. Our problem is never in under... We, the kingdom of God is ours. Yes. Can you manifest it? That's my question. The question is the manifestation of the kingdom. We all conceptually understand the kingdom, but can you manifest it? That's what we're called to do. We're called to bring forth the kingdom, manifest the kingdom, manifest miracles, manifest healing. We're called to manifest it. Manifest deliverance. All right. 
Well, I don't know how to do that. It's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. It's probably going to cost you years. <laughs> We're lazy, man. Serious. We're sons and daughters. We're giant killers. Who is this that defies the armies of my God? Who is it that accuses me and tells me you're going to take 15 of my items? Who is this that dares do that? Oh, we all, David and Goliath. Oh, David, you know, David, you know what that looks like? It's like David putting it all on the line. That's what it looks like. David had no guarantee. Hmm? Most of us, we won't do anything unless we have a guarantee. Well, I want God to, I just want a promise from the Lord. Well, he's told you to do it. But I want a promise. No, you want a guarantee. You know where the guarantee is? The guarantee is Jesus. The guarantee is not, is not the event. The guarantee is him. How do you know? Because he told me. I'm like, what's my problem, Lord? What's my problem? Is it fear? He's like, you don't have fear. I'm like, well, what is it? What is it? What is it? He said, you have trepidation. I go, what is my trepidation? He goes, you're uncertain. I go, what am I uncertain on? You're uncertain on. You said, you're uncertain on the outcome. And I'm like, I am. So why won't I move? Why won't I move? What am I? Because I'm uncertain of the outcome. Why won't I move? Why won't I move? Why won't I do this? See, this is real time. This isn't, you all need to go home and, you know, this is, this, is, this is kingdom on the ground. This is boots on the ground. This is what the kingdom looks like. And the Lord tells me, he begins to show me. He said, you will not move, Kevin, because you want a guarantee. I'm like, well, yeah, I kind of do want a guarantee. And I said, like, well, where's the guarantee? He said, I'm the guarantee. I'm the guarantee, Kevin. Yes, yes. He's your guarantee, Christian. He's your guarantee. You have to step by faith. Ready? I'll give it to you. You can see this all through the Bible. Exactly the same. Ready? They're going to cross the promised land. God says, you're going to go into the promised land. Listen, I may go a little long today, so if you guys got to, you know, you know, let's hang out. Is that good? All right. You know, we'll I know, I know. Well, you're, you're a super fan, Connie, so you're like, all day, pastor. Just keep bringing it all day. <laughs> all right. They take the priests, they're going to go into the promised land, right? Here's the deal. Priests are going to, I'll give you two of them, right? They're going to, we're going to, where are we going? We're going to go out and fight the enemy. Well, what's going to happen? The Lord says, hey, we're going to take the worship team. We're going to put the worship team out in front of the army. And when the army, when they march, and they, as the people begin to praise and worship, I'm going to set ambushes against the enemy, and I'm going to deliver you, right? And we, that's so poetic. Oh, wow, what a wonderful thing. And God sent ambushes against the enemy as the worship. Can you imagine if you were a worship leader? No, no, put yourself in that position. Good news, guys. Come here, come here. Good news. The Lord is going to deliver us today. Woo! All right. Here we go. So here's how it's going to work. The band, right, with the banjo and the timbrel and the jugs and the spoon, all y'all are going to get out in front, okay, in front of the army. Yeah, out in front of the army. We're the army. The soldiers are going to be back here, and the band is going to be out front. <laughs> and the enemy is going to be standing there with spears in chariots, and I don't know if one of the ambushes was confusion or not. They would have probably been looking at it like, are these guys nuts? You know? Can you imagine being in the band? And you had to go to the front of the army? Can you imagine that? I'll give you another one. Where was the guarantee? There was no guarantee. There was no guarantee. Do what I tell you. Do what I tell you. Right? Do what I tell you. Same thing. They go to cross into the promised land. The River Jordan is raging. It was like white water rapids completely. The Jordan has been dammed, and so it doesn't even flow anywhere near. But it was rushing water, overflowing Banks River. Joshua comes back. Good news, guys. We're going into the promised land. Right on. 
I need you to get the four guys that carry the ark, because they had designated people to carry the ark, the Kohens. So I want you to get the Kohens. They're going to take the ark on their shoulders, and they're going to march in front of the people. Yeah, right on, right? They'll be dancing and music. It's going to be like a really cool event. But the four guys that are carrying the ark, you're going to step down into the river. And when you step down into the river, the Lord's going to stop the river, and he'll part it, and we'll cross over on dry land. Well, that sounds like a plan, unless you're one of the four guys carrying the ark. <laughs> Let's just put this in real time. I'd be like this. I'd be like, <laughs> do I get a rope? You know, you can put a rope around me because I go that way. There was no guarantee. There was no guarantee. David didn't have a guarantee. He had no guarantee. None. None at all. We want guarantees. There are none. Jesus is the guarantee. Do what he says. Obey him. Take your rightful place, Christian. Don't be a coward. You're not a coward. You're courageous. The blood of a lion is in you. Who told you you were a coward? The blood of the king is in you. It's in you. Look to that. <laughs> Don't look to yourself. Look to the air that lives within you. Look to the kingdom that lives within you. That's where your courage will come from. So the question is, so like this is what basically it says, right? So, um, so I'm going to translate, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So I'm, I'm going to translate this for you. Here's the word deliverance. So we're going to go to the second part. Deliverance means, say it with me, rescue, set free, brought out of, and I love this one, dragged. When they're saying deliver us from evil, drag me if you have to. That's what they're saying. Some of you need to pray that prayer. Lord, when my ego gets in the way, grab me by the neck and drag me out. That's the kind of prayer they're praying. The temptation of my ego, let me not be led into. The destruction of my ego, let me not be led into. In other words, the issue isn't you, Lord. The issue is me. The issue is my ego. When I start leading with my ego, grab me by the back of the neck and drag me out of it. That's the word. So deliver us from evil. So show us in scripture. So then it says evil. So what is evil? It tells us what evil is. Evil is pain, agony, misery, maliciousness, slothfulness, delay, worthlessness, unprofitability, unfruitfulness. That's what that word means. When it's translated from evil, it means those things. So what does God call evil? He calls all pain is evil. It's not the pain of lament or the pain of regret. That's a different kind of pain. That's a pain that leads to righteousness sometimes. But anything that brings pain and agony into your life, God said, that's not good. That doesn't come from me. Anything that happens to you maliciously, when people do things to get back at you or to do things to hurt you, God said, that's not from me. Anything that's slothful or causes delay in your life, the Lord says, that's not from me. That's not from me. Anything that is worthless or unprofitable without fruit in your life, that's not from me. It's evil. You got to get it. You got to understand it. So let me, get, let me give you the translation. It says, you guys want to pray it with me? You guys want to pray it with me? Yeah? Okay, say this. Say, Lord. Well, let's say this. I'm trying to think. Because I, I got it worded a different way. I got to see how I can say it. So we'll just start here. Say, compelled, carried, driven into temptation by my ego, let me not be, but rescue me, set me free. Bring me out and drag me, if necessary, from all things, pain-ridden, miserable, agony-filled, all things, slothful, delaying, worthless, unprofitable, and unfruitful. Man, that's awesome. Now, that's a way better prayer to me. You know, like, are you questioning the King James? No, I'm in the original text. 
I'm taking the original text and bringing it to you. That's what's happening here. That's where these words are coming from, is from the Greek. I'm pulling them forward. So what does it look like? So here's the deal. This is what I want to get to, right? When God says this, all right, so the compulsion into our temptations, this is an issue. So where the church is ignorant oftentimes is we are ignorant, we are woefully ignorant on the compulsion to do evil. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know why. We call it the sin, we call it the sin nature. Okay, it's true. It's the sin nature. What is a compulsion? Let's talk about that first. A compulsion is something you are driven to do beyond the conscious will. Can I get a witness? Yes, two of you. Awesome, awesome. Gold stars for both of you. So what a compulsion is, let's just talk about anger, right? You're comp- something, there's, all compulsions have triggers. All triggers have roots. So you're, you get, something happens to you in a certain way, and you just go, your anger goes to like max 10 over the top. Usually before that happens, there's something in your heart going, don't do that, don't do that. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. But the compulsion says, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Don't send that email. Don't send that email. Don't send that email. Oh, yes, I'm going to send that email. Right? And it looks, it looks the same thing. This is why the church, we, we're, we're the woeful. So my wife and I have spent a lot of time working with people over the years in ministry. And we have seen limitations. We have seen, I've seen the promises of God. And I've seen the reality of the church. And I've seen the limitation of the leadership in addressing the reality of God and the issues within the church. It's very limited. And what we've learned is there has to be a higher way. So while we have sin nature in us, the Bible promises me that I, I have compulsions that are sinful, right? I have drive. So like the drug addict. So like the, we got a guy, here's what happens in church. You got a guy who's compulsively doing drugs. Anybody know what I'm saying? We call them addicts. And maybe there's a physical addiction. Yeah, you work with them. There's physical, there's physical addictions. But oftentimes, even when they go to AA, or they go to NA, or whatever it is they go to, right? They have a reset. Their life is in reset. They're detoxifying. They're coming out of it. Something inevitably will happen in their life that will pull a trigger that will drive them back into the same compulsion that they came out of. No? And we don't understand it. We don't understand the behavior. And, you know, psychologists and people who study the matter, the church won't do this. Anything with the soul, the church is like, that's soulish. Can't get into the soul. That's where all our problems are. Our problems are in the mind, our problems are in the will, and our problems are in the emotions. Look at your life. The way that you think, the, the, the emotions that you feel, the, the prisons that, you, that hold you emotionally, right? And the willful, compulsive things that you do that you don't want to do. That's where all our problems are. Yet that's the very area the church wants to avoid completely, <laughs> you know? And it's the very thing the Bible, the Bible calls it the restoration of the soul. Your soul can be restored. How do you know? Because Jesus said so. The restoration of the soul. Jeremiah 30, I will... Heal your bodies, and I will heal your wounds. He promises them. Jeremiah 30, 17. So he will heal our bodies, and he will heal our wounds. Not all of our wounds are external. What wounds is he talking about? There are wounds that you're car- we carry internally. So there's a, there's a possibility for the restoration of soul. You're like, well, you got more? I got plenty more. Everywhere Jesus shed blood, there's redemption. You're a three-part being, your spirit, soul, and body. You're a three-part being, your spirit, soul, and body. Je- you think Jesus only died for your spirit? Wherever he shed blood is where there's redemptive power. Let's just play this game. So can we say that redemption is in the blood of Jesus? Can we agree with that? Can we agree? We agree, right? I got to teach on redemption. No, just kidding. But like, so everywhere God said blood, Jesus said blood, there was a power to redeem. He shed blood in three places, the garden, the post, the whipping post, and on the cross. All three of those are places of redemption. He sweated guard blood in the garden, did he not? Anybody? Did he sweat blood in the garden? Okay. And what did he say? 
my soul is poured out. So he travailed in soul. And so blood came out in, a, in relationship to the travail of the soul. That's the one we don't understand. The other one that we see is we see him at the post, right? He's being struck. Struck. By his stripes we are That's right. Does that have anything to do with sin? So the church says, well, that, that was for the healing of sin. It had nothing to do with sin. The, sin the, the spiritual healing of sin took place on the cross. The spiritual, sin of, the spiritual healing of sin did not take place in the garden. The spiritual healing of the physical of sin did not take place at the post. By his stripes were healed. Jesus paid blood so that we could have access to Jehovah Rapha. He had access to our healer. When Christ was on the cross, Jesus was on the cross, he shed blood on the cross. So we have, the, we have Jesus paying the atoning blood of Jesus for our spiritual sin, the atoning blood of Jesus for our physical well-being, and the atoning blood of Jesus in the garden for our emotional well-being. That means we have access. By the blood of Jesus, we have access. By the blood of Jesus, I can be born again through the access of the blood that was set upon the cross. I can enter the kingdom. By the blood of Jesus and the stripes that he bore on his back, I can enter into healing. It's mine. He paid a price for me. By the blood of Jesus, I can enter into emotional healing and emotional restoration. This starts warping Christians because we don't understand it. We don't understand it. Nobody teaches it. Nobody wants to touch this stuff. They don't want to get anywhere near it. Like, it's going to get messy. Of course it's going to get messy. Big deal. Jesus is decently and in order. Everywhere I see Jesus is at, it's messy. Show me where Jesus, everything Jesus went was decently in order. Every time it was decently in order, he threw it into a ruckus, right? I mean, it, it's just the way it is. So the root, what is the, what is the, what is the, so all of the compulsions within us have a trigger and the triggers all have roots. So what happens is, so let's, let's use another one. Let's use one that maybe comes home for a lot more people. Let's use um, depression, right? Depression. People will be functional. They'll be in an environment. They'll be in an atmosphere. Everything will be fine. Something will happen that will trigger an issue. Let's just say the issue is rejection. Let's say the issue is value and worth. So the issue of rejection and value and worth is triggered, and their compulsive response is to withdraw, isolate, and camp out on their bed for three weeks. Oh, yeah. That's a compulsive behavior, too. And it's compelled by what? Something triggered it. And that trigger, the trigger isn't the issue. The root is the issue. So we have compulsive anger. We have many, many compulsions. Like the person that retreats into depression, they don't really want to retreat into depression. They're, in fact, they're going, why do I want? I don't want to be depressed. But there is, a, there is a compulsion that is beyond or supersedes their will. And that compulsion, just like the drug addict who doesn't want to go do drugs again, he's compelled to go do it again because the trigger was pulled because the root wasn't dealt with. And so the root is still active, right? That's what happens. This is what it is. So I'm just telling you the problem. There is a solution. So you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so screwed up, aren't we all? Welcome to the planet. We have to realize this about ourselves. We have to realize this. This is what happens. No one's exempt from this. It doesn't matter how spiritually ascended you come. Why do you think these pastors go down wholesale? They don't read their Bible. They're not in prayer groups. They're not in accountability groups. They're not spiritual enough. Is that why they go down? No. They go down because they have undealt with roots. And something pulls the trigger in them, and it re reacts, and there's something that reacts that reveals the roots that are in their lives. Yeah, that's what happens. They, we're, we're, we're taught to keep everything to ourselves. We don't keep anything to ourselves. You're, you're like, Kevin, you're throwing all your junk on the table, Kevin. You're, you, I don't understand. You're making me uncomfortable. You're throwing all your junk. You ain't seen nothing yet, man. I'll, I'll throw all my junk on the table. I don't have any problems. You know why? Because I don't care if people, I do, I do. My wife hates it when I say I don't care. I'm indifferent. 
I want people to like me. I want people to care for me. I want people to concern, to be respectful of me. You understand that? I, I'm, not, I'm not looking for something different. I am. But that does not establish my value and worth. My value and worth is established by Jesus. So if I throw all my junk on the table and you think differently of me, I can't control that. But that so just because you think differently of me is irrelevant to me because my value and worth is not established by you. My value and worth is not even established by myself. Exactly. Come on. <laughs> the point is to help us. That's the point. The point is, that, is to help us. When the Lord shows stuff in our lives, I was just talking with Jeremiah, and he was just saying all this stuff. He said, how do you get to the point where you're really free? I said, the problem is, is as we journey, what happens in the journey is stuff is revealed in us. Stuff is revealed in us. People have compulsive issues. They have value and worth issues. Every time they start to succeed, they self-destruct. Why is it Every time things start going right, relationally, spiritually, financially, whatever it may be, why is it every time you become any, you start drawing into success of any kind, or any time you start moving above this level of mediocrity, you self-destruct? You have an issue with value and worth. You don't believe you're worthy of it. That's probably where that's rooted. There's some root there, some lie that you believe in the soul that tells you subconsciously, not consciously, that you are not worthy. And that trigger, when you become successful and things start going right for you, you implode. See it all the time. <laughs> That's another one I see. People just implode. Every time something goes right in their life, they just destroy it, tear it down. Women start having a loving relationship, and they just blow it up. They want the guy that breaks plates. That's normal to them, right? They have a loving guy, and they just say, oh, I don't know. I don't like this. Boom, they just blow it up because it's, you know, something good's coming into life. I see guys with businesses start doing good. And then they just start breaking all discipline, <laughs> doing everything they know they shouldn't do, and they self-destruct because there's, some, there's, an, there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue there. The compulsive behavior to self-destruct is an issue of value and worth. There's others, but that's, that's one of them. So we're woefully ignorant in the compulsion, but yet the Bible says, so the Christian would say, the argument would be, well, that's the sin nature, Pastor. You know, what we will to do, we do not do, and what we will not to do, we do. That's the sin nature. That's Romans. I get it. I understand it. Romans 7. I get it. Well, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. I understand that scripture. I do. I get it. However, I also want to understand my inheritance. And my inheritance says that I can be delivered from sin and all of its lingering effects. The Bible gives me the name of the Lord, Jehovah Mekadesh, which means the Lord my sanctifier. He's not just my righteousness. He doesn't just establish me. He promises that he will deliver me from not just sin, but the lingering effects that follow me in sin. So I have to apply my inheritance of Jehovah Mekadesh. This is why the lingering effects of sin, when properly addressed, Christian, cannot hold you. When you properly address let me see, let me try, I got one amen. When you properly address the lingering effects of sin, you cannot be held by it. Emphasis, properly addressed, because it's your inheritance. When you apply the legality of what is rightfully yours, there must be freedom. It must be applied. It's true. It's 100% true. Sin has no hold on you. I'm free in Christ. Are you? Look at your life, buddy. People say, oh, I don't need to do anything. I don't believe in any of this. This is not, oh, I'm free in Christ. Jesus has done it all. I don't need to do anything. I, I love that. That's another argument I get. People are going to stop arguing with me because I always have an answer for them. I'm going to look at them and I'm going to go, okay, so you're telling me you don't need to do anything. No, God's done it all. God's done it all. So if I looked at all of the scope and the sphere of your life, you mean to tell me that every single sphere of your life is manifesting kingdom? Is that what you're telling me? Because if it's not, then maybe, just maybe, just maybe, there might be something that you need to do. 
There might be something that you need to partner with. There might be something that you don't see. Just a thought. Just a thought. There's a partnership that's required. We have to activate and appropriate our inheritance. Lay hands on the sick. It's given to you. Divine health is given to you. Stupidity is not. So if you just completely train wreck your body, you know, like my wife said. She said, she said to me, you know, our, our years are in the Lord's hands. And she said, but we need to give him something to work with. Right? We need to take care of ourselves. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the truth. So, like, but healing belongs to the believer. It's yours. But if you never step into healing, you never let people pray for you, you never activate any of this stuff, and you never know what your inheritance is. It's, again, it's Ferrari. And you never, put, you never get inside of it. I, I told first service, I share this story a lot. I had a guy, a friend of mine, a guy I know, he lays hands on the sick, and he talks about these crazy miracles. I mean, we see crazy miracles. We've seen really good miracles. I mean, I love it. And, but be, this was years ago. This was part of my, the Lord training me. It was like this guy would see these crazy miracles, and he would talk about these crazy miracles that he would see. And I'd be like, come on, man. Really? I don't know if you all have ever heard miracle stories, and you're just kind of like, yay, God. But really? Yay, Jesus. I don't know, man. Seriously? I, am I the only one? Okay, then stretch your hands toward, towards me. Right? So I'm taking this to the Lord. I go, come on, Lord. You mean to tell me that happened? And the Lord says to me, this is, this is Jesus. That's how beautiful he is. He's the smiting stone. He comes, he, he comes against our pride. The Lord says to me, Kevin, you're complaining or you're questioning miracles that this guy is doing. I'm like, well, kind of. And yeah, I was. And the Lord says to me, do you lay hands on 200 people a week? Because that's what this guy was doing. He would pray for over 200 people a week. He just trying to move forward into the healing ministry and just was really trying to press in and manifest the healing ministry. Learning as you go, learning as you go, learning as you go, research development, learning as you go. 200 people a week this guy on average prayed for. Jesus says to me, do you pray for 200 people a week? I'm like, nope. I haven't prayed for, probably, I haven't prayed for healing for probably 200 people in five years. I probably haven't matched that. I mean, I prayed for, I did in the past, but you know, now it's another story. Now that, that was then, this is now. But the point was, is the Lord says to me, if you pray for 200 people a week, don't you think you could see some of those miracles? Huh? Yeah, I couldn't activate it. Now we activate it. It's had a girl healed brain, brain damage. Easter Sunday. Absolutely. It was glorious. We've seen beautiful miracles, lots of them. We still see a minor and major, but this one was glorious because the girl was an atheist. <laughs> people don't know she was she was sherry was trying to talk to her in the back and she was like don't talk to me about god i don't believe in god stay away from me i'm just here because my godmother brought me here i don't want anything to do with her i don't want anything to do with god i didn't know that and so the woman that comes here she's like would you talk to my goddaughter and i'm like yeah I talk to her you know and she's like she doesn't know jesus so i come up to her and i start talking to her you know, and she's immediately telling me, I don't want to talk about God. You know, I don't want, I don't want you to tell me anything about him. I really don't want to know. I'm, I'm blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, what if Jesus wants to talk to you? Is that okay? I said, it's okay if he talks to you? And she said, yeah. She goes, okay. So I gave her a word. I gave her a prophetic word, and I was just sharing with her. I was, you know, doing, you know, telling her what the heart of God was for her and, you know, how the Lord sees her and just wonderful things. And I said, I just feel like one of the things I said to her, I said, I feel like you're just really, you're just this person that brings forth a lot of hope. I said, I just feel like you carry hope and you bring forth hope. And a lot of people draw hope from you. And she looks at me and goes, my daughter's name's Hope. <laughs> so she literally brought forth hope. But there was more to it than that, you know. And I started telling her all this stuff. And then she tells me that she was in a really horrible accident. I didn't know any of this either. And that she had to learn to eat, he had to learn to eat again. And she had to learn to walk again. And she said, I, can't, I couldn't walk. I couldn't eat. And then I noticed that she was a little, like her speech was a little bit off, right? I noticed it. And she showed me the scar on her neck. She said, I have a huge scar here. She's showing me all these different things. She said they had to operate on me everywhere. And she was like completely like broken. 
but she, and I just told her, I, I get, ready? Honor creates access. And so I said to her, man, you've overcome so much. I said, what strength you possess? And she's opened up her heart. And I mean, I'm sitting there, and she, as soon as she starts telling me about the injury, I could, the, the, the spirit, I could just feel the Spirit's power, and I could feel he's cunt, he, like he wants to minister. I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm going to pray for this girl. And so she's got like a broken, she's like, oh, my wrist, I can't turn my wrist. And she's like, oh, I got pain in my hip. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to pray for your wrist, or I'm going to pray for your hip. That's what I'm thinking. And, but I trust the Lord. I'm going to say, hey, can you stand up? I want to pray for you. And I'm going, okay. And then I ask the Holy Spirit, I'm like, what do you want to do, Lord? And he's like, um, I want you to ask her, of all of the things that are wrong with her, what's the first thing that comes to her? And so I said, of all the things that are wrong with you, what's the first thing that comes to you? And she goes, I can't run. And I'm like, at all? And she's like, no, at all. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, the brain damage on my right side, you know, she's, I said, what happens when you run? She said, I fall over. She said, because the right side of my brain is damaged. So I started praying for her, all this other stuff, laying on hands, doing a whole deal, a little bit more of a process. I'm condensing it for you. Um, and... Uh, and after we were done praying, I grabbed her hand. I said, come on, let's run. And so we ran down here, and we ran back here. And she's looking at me like this. And I go, now you're going to run. And she, ran, and she ran, right, ran right beside me. You were here. You saw it, right? There was nobody here. It was, it was like at the end of service. Everybody was gone, right? She was here at the very end, and there was a few people lingering. And Connie was like, why were you guys running? I was like, the girl couldn't run. You know, so we were running up here and running back here, and she kept trying to reach for my hand trying to reach for my hand, right? And I said, you got it, you got it, don't worry, I'm here. And her eyeballs are this big. And I looked at her and I said, I, and she just was like, Compl-. I go, do you wanna ask Jesus in your heart? She goes, I do. <laughs> yeah, come on, man. Glorious, glorious. <laughs> and then she comes up and hugs my wife. She's like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I asked, I was like, I shared in the car, I was like, what was that all about, did you know her? And she's like, no, she yelled at me in the back. I was like, oh, no way. She's like, but she was super sweet, super sweet girl. Just been wounded, a lot of hurt, a lot of hurt, you know, healing power, man. That's what it's all about. But that would never activate if I didn't step into my inheritance. You say, well, you, you're different. No, no, I've practiced. That's the difference. I'm intentional, and I practice, and I apply myself, and I, you know, that's another story. Ah, where am I going? We're woefully ignorant about how to process the soul. We're woefully ignorant about what, what drives us to sin. The sins that were compulsions come from roots or come from uh, triggers, and triggers come from roots. We don't know how to process the soul. We're emotionally damaged, and we don't know how to fix it. We think that 15 scriptures in an accountability group is going to do it. 15 scriptures in an accountability group is good, but 15 scriptures in an accountability group isn't going to heal what's going on inside of you, and anybody who's been in the faith long enough, longer than a few years is going to say yes to that. You know, it doesn't matter how many scriptures you teach, you're t- t- you, you recite. Well, I worship and it leaves. Yep, you worship and then it leaves. But when you stop worshiping, does it come back? Yep, right of visitation. It's visitation. That is a right of visitation. When you worship, it's not there. Well, I'm in the presence of God, it's not there. But the problem is, is we can't be in the presence of God 24-7. So when you worship, your anxiety lifts. That's great. Well, what if your anxiety didn't have a hold on you? What if your anxiety never had a right to you? What if there's a damage within your soul that anxiety has, is, has a right of affliction over you and continues to manifest itself in afflicting you all the time? Just a thought. I don't believe it. Okay, keep crazy. So I tell people all the time, you can keep crazy. Your crazy doesn't affect me. So what, is, what do I, it doesn't matter to me. My name's Kevin. I'm just here to help. That's all I'm trying to do. So the enemy does nothing but by right. So we think that what, what, what ends up happening is, is that we, so there's a process required to activate and appropriate the inheritance that is ours, particularly in the soul. People say, Jesus has done it all. I don't need to do anything. That's not, that's not right. That's not correct at all. 
And then we don't understand deliverance. We think that deliverance is all confrontation of the devil. Deliverance is not com just, com it may be, but it can be, but it's not all, it's not all um, direct confrontation of the devil. And the reason that we, how is that true? Because the devil does nothing but by rights. The devil doesn't, listen, there's a difference between when the devil blows through your house and blows everything up and when he's sitting on your couch eating Doritos. There's things in our lives that give him rights, unrepented, unrenounced, unbroken, unhealed things in our life that give the enemy a right of visitation, give him a right of habitation, give him rights of resistance in our lives. Uh-huh. There are things that just the same cycle keeps repeating itself. It comes, it leaves for a few months, then it comes back. That's visitation. Then there are oppressions that exist in your life that you can't get rid of no matter how much you contort yourself. No matter how much you bring your leg over your head and your other leg, no matter what position you get in, you can't get rid of it. It's there. It can be external. It can be weights. It can be oppression. Or it can be internal. It can be anxieties. It can be fear. It can be hopelessness. It can be anything like that. The enemy does nothing but by right. Nothing. Most people, they carry crazy for so long, it's normal to them. They've had crazy since they were six years old, so they don't know anything but crazy. They've had fear since they were four. They've had fear since they were seven. They don't know anything, so they, they accept that as normal. It's not normal. For whom the sun sets free is, right? You have to appropriate and apply it. So where's the rights come from? So here's the question, right? I'm going to close. Just give me 10, and I'm out, all right? So 10, generational sins, generational ancestral sins. So say, the enemy works with us. So listen, does he come and oppress you? Yeah, he comes and oppresses me, and, but he doesn't last long. An oppression doesn't last long. And an oppression is seldom repeated the same way. You know, he may come and boom, here I am. You know, or he may put a resistance in front of me, and it may be something I've never seen before. But if he's doing the same thing over and over again, I know he has a right of visitation. And I find out what it is, and it goes. And it's gonna, I'm, I'm not, I don't live with it. I don't tolerate it under any circumstances. What God has shown me is very vulnerable to me. So, like, I seem a little bit like, oh, 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 you know, to share this with you because it's a very vulnerable thing, like what God has taught me. But we have generational ancestral sins. So what will happen is, so we have, thing, we have issues within us, and we have issues that are over us. This is how the enemy manipulates you. He manipulates you through triggers that are internally, fear, anxiety, worth, lie, all that stuff. That's how he does. Then another area is he manipulates you externally. The church is real good with renouncing and repenting and breaking all these things over us, over our lives. Problem is, what happens is, is a lot of the things that are over your life are directly related to what's in you. And until you deal with what's in you, what's over you doesn't fully leave. This is why the church cannot. This is why the church has this ideology that the, that we're delivered, and you know you've got to fight to keep your deliverance. You got to fight to keep your deliverance. And yeah, listen, when I do inner healing, it don't come back. It doesn't come back. Anybody here done inner healing here? Anybody? Whatever you deal with doesn't come back. It's not coming back. There may be another issue. You may deal with fear here. Fear's gone. There may be five other issues of fear, but that issue of fear isn't coming back. Whatever we deal with goes. But the church has this understanding that you've got to fight for your healing. You've got, you got to fight to maintain it. You've got to fight. To, what if you didn't have to fight to maintain it? Didn't, what if we didn't? Is that, is that possible? And so the internal stuff is often links to the external. So the church, you, some of you have been to these seminars. You've been to these weekend getaways. You've been to these conferences. We're going to renounce. We're going to repent. We're going to renounce. We're going to repent. And we renounce, and we repent, we renounce, we repent. We're going to cast the devil out. You got out of here. Get out of here. Out of my finances. Out of here. Uh. And you know what he does? He leaves for a while, like, man, and he waits, and he comes back. Well, why does he come back? Because he has a right to come back. When you tell him to leave, he has to leave. Okay, I'll go stand in the yard for a while. 
Get out of my house, devil. Get off my couch. Okay. Winds the Doritos up, puts them down, walks out, stands in the front yard. <sighs> looks at his watch. Well, I'm going to go back inside. And then he comes right back in. How is that possible? Because there's an open door. But I commanded him to go. But he has a key. He has a right. What's that right? Well, that's the process, isn't it? That's the art form, isn't it? That's, that's where the kingdom, that's where, that's where the, I'm giving you the concept. The reality is, an indifferent, is a different thing. Like, what does it look like? It can be known. It can be discovered. Absolutely. So that's internally. Ancestral rights, things that exist in your family. People go, there's no ancestral rights. This is, I'll give you, I'm, I keep giving you all the Christian arguments. Probably because there's people watching going, wait a minute. My father was a good man. My grandfather was a good man. My mother was a good man. My grandmother was a good man. I'm like, yeah, I understand that. I don't see where there's any ancestral sins in my mother and my father and my grandfather and my grandmother. I don't see any of them. I'm like, well, do you know what happened in your family 400 years ago or 200 years ago? Bible says that the, the sins of the ancestor can be visited to the third and the fourth generation. Four generations ago, your grandfather was a covenant maker, a covenant breaker, and stole the dreams of another man intentionally, invoking a curse upon his family line. But I'm in Christ. It doesn't matter because it doesn't affect you spiritually. In Christ affects you spiritually. That legacy now carries forward. Here's your great-great-grandfather, whatever, great-great-grandpappy did it. You don't see it with grandpappy. You don't see it with dad. But all of a sudden, it shows up with you. Everybody keeps breaking covenants with you. Everybody keeps stealing the dreams from you. And you're like, where does this come from? And it keeps happening over and over and over again. Just a thought. Just a thought. <laughs> what right does he have? Ancestral and generational sins to the third and fourth generation. I know my family. My family were good people. He don't know what your family did, man. If one generation is 50 years and he can go back four generations, that means he can go back 200 years. Anybody know what your family was doing 200 years ago? I don't. Let's say it was 70 years and he can go back four generations. He, now he's back 280 years. Anybody know what happened to your family 280 years? I don't. And you say, well, how do I know this? Do you see recurring issues in your life? Are there things that are peculiar? Are there things that just seem like an anomaly that keep happening circumstantially? That's generational, typically. He has rights. I had a woman say to me this. I had a, she said to me, I, she came to me one time. She was doing counseling. She had all this hurt, pain from her divorce, blah, blah, blah. She wanted to meet with me, whatever. I'll meet with you. So I talked to her, and I started talking to her about a bunch of stuff. And uh, I don't know what I mentioned. And she goes, well, you know, every, every marriage on my mom's side of the family never lasts more than seven years. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, no marriage in any memory of my mother's side lasts more than seven years. I go, well, what happens? Divorce? And she said, no, either the husband dies. I was thinking, well, note to self, don't marry, don't have anybody marry into this family. Note to self, like, so, like, either the husband dies or there's a divorce. And I said, you don't find that peculiar? That going down your mother's line, if you follow down your mother's line, that no, no, no marriage in that family lasts more than seven years? You don't feel that's, that's, that's habitation. That's not visitation. He owns it. And he keeps showing up, showing up, showing up. And until you know who you are, you're no different than a slave. Until you understand what you are and what belongs to you, you're no different than a slave. Christians, people, Christians. Personal transgressions, the second one, so generational sins, personal transgressions, which means what? A lot of us carry unbroken soul ties with people. There is an issue there. There's a lot of actions and inactions that you've made, direct actions, willful actions, personal interactions, personal inter interactions with witchcraft. And look, we're in Miami. <sighs> You know, people go, that's the, Santeria is the Cuban religion. Santeria is witchcraft. 
It is witchcraft. It is demonic. Oh, well, voodoo is the Haitian religion. Voodoo is witchcraft. Some of you, you have ancestral people in your family. If you're Spanish, you have people in your family for 200 years. Well, no, my family never did, never did Santeria. Really? 200 years ago, nobody did it? 280 years ago, nobody did it? Just a thought. One of the, one of the, one of the resolutions of witchcraft is destruction. When you see an ongoing pattern of destruction in your life, that is a clear indication of witchcraft, 100%. So when things are just destroyed for no reason, boom, there it is, destruction, 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 that's witchcraft, 100%. There's some legacy there, whether it's generational or whether you practiced it or not. I, I could tell you stories. <laughs> this is Miami, man. You know, this is a Christmas tree. I told the Lord when, I, when, I, when, I, when he was, we were sending, we were going to plant a church, I said, send me where, send me where you, I can see your glory. <laughs> I said, I want to go, Lord, I'll go. But I want to go where I can see your glory. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was asking for. I mean, it's amazing because the kingdom is here. The kingdom shows up and the kingdom is here. Emotional abuse, we carry wounds in our soul. This is the other side. What are these? This is the, really the biggest issue. The next two, so that's the stuff that's over you. That's the stuff that, you know, the, the, the rights that he holds with you over you is usually generational or unrepented actions on your part. There's some area, and you can appropriate it. Listen, repentance frees it all. He can spend his whole lifetime binding you up, and Jesus will go, let him go. All you got to do is correctly apply it. And what's happening to you is a, light, a right is being enforced over you legally. Legally. It's a legal accusation. And so you have to undo it legally. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of sin and death. This isn't an eternal law that the enemy is invoking. He's invoking a natural law. He's invoking the spiritual law in natural consequences. This is, this is real. This is real. This isn't, you know, Johnny go down to church and sit with... And I don't teach like this every week. So if you're, you're new, I'm not like, every week's this huge, heavy message on deliverance and stuff like that. But... It's important because it comes up in the text. And so emotional wounds and abandonment. So what does that look like? Emotional wounds, abuse, abandonment, neglect, direct and indirect. So what's an example of that? Um, you usually were abused. Most of our problems exist in childhood. You carry forth wounds from your childhood. My dad was a good guy. Your dad was a good guy, but your dad hurt you. Just because your dad hurt you doesn't mean your dad was a good guy. Just because your dad was a good guy doesn't mean your dad didn't hurt you. We hurt our, we, we, we carry injuries. We do. Some people, it's direct. Some people, so the wounds that we carry oftentimes are direct, you know, and wounds of a child. This is where we carry them. We carry the wounds from, I, look, I've hurt my kids. I've done inner healing with my own children. Try that one on, <laughs> you know. Why? Because I, I know I've brought wounds. Those wounds are not direct wounds. Sometimes those wounds are unmet expectations. We're wounded because some expectation. I expected my dad to always love me and always be there on my birthday, and your dad didn't show up on your birthday. Because then internally, that's an unmet expectation, which creates a wound, which creates a worth, a value, an abandonment issue. This is how inner healing works. You need inner healing. And believe me, I'm not trying to give myself something to do. So if you want inner healing, you're going to have to wait till August. That's how full we are. And I don't even talk about it. I hardly ever talk. I mean, sometimes in casual conversations with people, I do. But, you know, I mean, you need inner healing. I don't need inner healing. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do, because <laughs> there's stuff inside of you. Why would you want to carry stuff? Anyway, I don't want to get too personal with you. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not looking at you personally. So we have all these issues. Wounds come from unmet expectations. There's direct abuse. A physically, listen, let's just be clear. 
There is physical abuse, there is verbal abuse, and there is sexual abuse in our families, in people's families. People have been traumatized that way. People have been traumatized through abandonment. Okay, I'll use me. This is my class. This is my story. My dad did nothing to me. My dad never hurt me. My dad never yelled at me. I don't even remember my father saying a harsh word, but my father wasn't there. I carried wounds from my father for a long time, and I had to do a lot of inner healing with myself because of unmet expectations with my father. Uh huh. Yeah, kept showing up, showing up, showing up. I, Lord, what is that? Oh, it's this. Well, what is it? Value and worth. Well, what is value and worth? Why, you know, like it's not in my head. It's like in my heart. Why do I react that way? You value and worth. Your father wasn't there. You believe a lie that you're not worthy. You believe a lie that you're not lovable. You believe, you believe a lie that people will leave you. I don't know, some stupid thing like that, but that's what happens. You don't want it, guys. It happens. It is imprinted in your soul. Lady was just asking me for a service. I told her, I said, why is it the wounds of the child? She said, I completely agree with you. She said, I think it's that, that's where it happens. Your issues in the present are directly linked to the issues in the past, right? So all your life you were told you were worthless by your father. All your life you were told you were no good. You were worthless. You couldn't do anything by your dad. You've, now you're 30 years past that. 30 years past that. But as soon as your wife says something to you that triggers your value and worth, right, and triggers that negative wound that exists in you, you lose it. And she has no idea what's triggering you. She's like looking at you like, you know, oh, come on. Come on, come on, ladies. You got ones, you got some too, you know? You have the same thing. You have, diff you have different issues, but you have the same thing. I'm just using issues that, 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 are, that are relatable. This is what it looks like. There's a wound there. There's a value and worth there. There's an abandonment issue there. There's something there that's there. You're wounded by your mother, right? So typically, men that are wounded by their fathers have a hard time bonding with males. Men that are wound women that are wounded by their mothers have a hard time bonding with females. We don't, we can't, we, we have a broken mirror in the same set, in the gender, there's something broken there, right? We cannot mirror correctly our gender. It's broken. Am I getting too deep for you guys? Am I getting? Okay. <laughs> What's that? Do it today? I'm doing great. Oh, okay. I got you. Got you. But I'd say, so, so the point is, is that are rooted in our childhood. The reason that we're rooted in our childhood. Okay. Anybody know what age, what age do you get um, uh, bar mitzvahed? Anybody? 13, right? How about bar mitzvah? Bar mitzvah and bar mitzvah is what? What is it? It's the girls the same, right? It's 13, right? Why? There's something, why did God, what, so what happens with a bar mitzvah is a Jewish boy becomes accountable to the law. He now becomes his own man. And they don't, they don't make the boy accountable to the law until he's 13. The girl becomes accountable to the word too at 13. Why? There's something about God. This is, this is all within the culture of the Hebrew people. But God's design with our, with our beings is there's, some, there's cognitive changes that happen in us. This is, you can map this. There's cognitive changes that typically happen at 13. There's cognitive changes that happen between 16 and 18. And there's cognitive changes that happen around the age of 25. So anybody that's in child development are going to see, you're going to go, wow, that's totally true. My kid was great until she turned 16 or 13. And then, then as soon as I got over that crazy, she turned 16 and I got a whole other batch of crazy, right? I mean, that's what happens is there's issues with our, we're, we're developing. Prior to 13, what happens, when parent, what happens when a kid turns 13 is mom doesn't know everything anymore. Can I get a witness here? Anybody at all? Dad doesn't know anything anymore. When that kid's eight years old, daddy's a genius, when that kid's eight years old, mommy can do no wrong. But when they turn 13, they realize you don't know anything, and I have a what? Mind of my own. 
because they, there's a shift in their development. What happens when a kid is wounded under the age of 13 is there's a wound that takes place in them, and they don't have emotional tools to process what happens. It's how we're designed. It's how we're made. When Adam, when Adam became naked, he wasn't just naked spiritually. He wasn't just naked physically. He was naked emotionally, which means he became exposed. So when Adam sinned, we became exposed vulnerable and susceptible to things that are just crazy. So what happens is a kid gets wounded. Kid gets wounded. Okay, let's say gold. I always use this because it's easy. Goldfish dies, right? Kid's six years old. Goldfish dies. Oh, he's having a breakdown. Oh my gosh, the goldfish dies. He has no clue why the goldfish dies. The goldfish is dead. Why is the goldfish is dead? Mommy's got to come down and go, now, honey, the goldfish needs water. And when the goldfish doesn't have water, and daddy didn't put the water in the goldfish bowl, when the goldfish doesn't have water, the goldfish dies. Mommy has to process the kid into the emotions that they're experiencing. When the kid's 13 years old and the goldfish dies, I know, they're, they're counting me out. So, I said it was going to go long. When the goldfish dies and you're 13 years old, you don't think anything of it. You don't go and get mommy. Mommy, tell me why the goldfish dies. So the problem is, is what happens to us when we're wounded or things happen to us, abuse, abandonment, neglect, right? Unmet expectations wounds us. We don't have the emotional tools to process what has happened to us. And so there is a wound. There is a pain. So my dad left me left our family, and I was maybe fourth or fifth grade. I carried that wound my whole life. It doesn't make any sense. I know. I know. It doesn't make any sense. But that's what happens to us. It's, 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 it, we get wounded, and we ended up carrying that. And I carried it my whole life. I'd be around people that reminded me of my father, and I never felt accepted in certain circles. I know it's nuts, right? You're like, you? I'm like, I never felt accepted in certain circles. Even after I came to Christ, I still struggled with things like socially, my wife will tell you, is wounds, right? Had to overcome this. So what's my point? I'm trying to get you to understand this. I'm trying to show you where crazy comes from. So some of you, you're like, you know, you, 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 you gotta, it's, it's, it, it, it might, if, to try to help you understand yourself. Some of you, 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 some of you guys are like not in that world at all, but other people are in this world. But everybody has issues. We all have issues. There are people that can't move forward. They can't, they can't take the step. They can't move forward. Why is that? Wounds. And then the last thing is the incepted lies that result as a wound. So my father leaves me. My father abandons me. My father's not around, right? Doesn't do anything to me. But there's, the wound happens, and there's a lie. Well, you're not worthy. You're not lovable. You're not accepted. You're not wanted. You're not good enough. And I carry that my whole life. And then all the triggers start happening. Anytime I felt like I wasn't good enough, trigger. What's that all about? Anytime I felt like I wasn't loved, trigger. <laughs> Anytime I felt like I wasn't good enough, trigger. Well, where was the trigger coming from? Probably nothing in the immediate circumstances was triggering me. It was just a normal circumstance. That's why some, of, some people are triggered and other people aren't. But you're triggered by things that other people aren't triggered by, and other people are triggered by things that you're not triggered by. I mean, that's just the way it is. So, uh, so th th that's the issue. But the good news is, the good news is, you can be free. That's the good news. The, the, the key to freedom is understanding that you're broken and understanding it. You can keep it if you want to. I tell people all the time, you can keep it if you want to. Nobody's taking it from you. You can keep it if you want to. But if you're going to tell me that 50 verses in accountability groups is going to free you, 50 verses in accountability groups aren't, isn't going to free you. It isn't. It's not. And some of you, you've been Christians for a long time, and you know. Tried answers don't answer these problems. We have to deal with it. God wants you healthy. You understand it? He wants you healthy. And my, here's my perspective. If Jesus paid with blood for me to have it, I should value it. 
If he paid with blood for me to have the Holy Spirit, then I'll worship you for the Holy Spirit. If you paid with blood so that I could have eternal salvation, then I worship you for the eternal salvation. If you paid with blood so that I could manifest and receive healing, then I worship you. If you paid with blood so that I can have emotional, physical, and soul restoration, then I worship you. I honor you, and I want it. I want it. I was <laughs> like, how do we sign up? <laughs> if you want it, you can sign up. I mean, look, we're, you know, we're in the process of doing a lot of things. I'm trying to train a team so that it's not just me. So I'm in the process of doing that. So nonetheless, but right yet, Jeremiah's like, right over here, right here. So like, he, how many have you done? Like eight? Yeah, he's like an addict. So he's like, what happens is, what truly happens is if you, if you want freedom and you experience the freedom, you'll want more of it. You'll want more of it. And like, I want whole freedom. I do this stuff on myself all the time. So I'm like, I'm, I'm more hardcore with myself than I am with anybody. And I could tell you stories on that, but I won't. So we're going to pray. You guys pray, right? If you want to do inner healing, I'm not telling you to do it. Ever say with the pastor, come on, is not telling me to do inner healing. He's just trying to show me, come on, where crazy comes from. That's all I'm trying to do, right? I'm not telling you to do anything, but I'm inviting you. If you want to do inner healing, just you can email the church. Shelly will give you an application, and you're going to be like, I can't get in until December. No, but that's probably, no, it's not that bad. But... She's actually trying to get me to do, it's a long story. We're not going to get into that. But nonetheless, you can email the church and uh, we'll get you an app and we'll go from there. So um, we're going to pray. So just stand up your feet if you would, please. We're close. And we have a prayer team as well over there. So if I've invoked you and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so screwed up. I need prayer today. Wish granted, we have a prayer team available. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I honor you as my deliverer. I honor you as my sanctifier. I thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is the agent of my sanctification. I renounce all religious beliefs and attitudes when it comes to you and my understanding of your ways. I pray, let me not be compelled, carried, driven into temptation by my ego, but rescue me, set me free, bring me out of and drag me, if necessary, from all things, pain-ridden, miserable, agony-filled, and all things slothful, delaying, worthless, and unprofitable, and unfruitful. Say this, I give you permission to deal with me on the root of my compulsions, on my soul wounds, on any pains or regrets that I carry, every place in my heart where I have been struck that continues to affect me. I will do whatever it takes. takes. Healing is at the point of pain. Deliverance and sanctification and the freedom from the lingering effects of sin are mine by right of inheritance. Today, I claim what is rightfully mine and I enter the process of the activation of my inheritance in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. Come on. We can, yeah, come on. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week.